Hey, welcome to the Scrum GBH's Politics Podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Peter, greetings. Hey there, Adam. In this episode, you're going to hear from Michelle Wu, the Boston City Councilor and mayoral candidate. She was actually the first person to officially jump into the 2021 Boston mayor's race back in mid-September and was followed soon after by her council colleague, Andrea Campbell. Boston Mayor Marty Walsh still hasn't officially said he's seeking a third term. But Peter, you've contended for weeks that it's pretty much a done deal, right? Yeah, I, I'm not so sure contended is the right word. I think I've just come it's to not. <laughs> I think I've come to believe, as many others have, is that a job in Washington under the Biden administration isn't gonna materialize at least yet. And uh all the signs behind the scenes are that uh, Mayor Walsh is running again to become, or to stay, Mayor Walsh. You know, as soon as the word contended is passed my lips, I, I made the change on the fly. I was trying not to be verbally redundant. I thought, oh, man, that's the wrong thing to say. So thank you for the instant edit. With that, on to our conversation with Michelle Wu. Loyal Scrum listeners will know we've talked to her a lot over the past few years, but this is her first appearance on the podcast as a full-fledged mayoral candidate. Michelle, first off, thank you for joining us. I'm glad that we're finally doing it. This is the first convo we've had with you since you were, since you became an official mayoral candidate. Thanks for making time to be with us. Always, always happy to be on the Scrum. I want to get you at the outset to talk about this event that you had a day ago, as we record, where you were endorsed by precisely a dozen political leaders from around Boston. Who endorsed you and why is it advantageous or important to get endorsements from people who aren't in the city that you're seeking to lead? Yesterday, we had an event focused on the power of local government and featuring many of our uh, newly announced supporters who are all municipal elected officials from around the Commonwealth, from outside Boston. And I know it seems unusual to be touting support from folks who are not themselves Boston voters and don't directly represent Boston voters. But in fact, the point that we all are trying to make is that so many of our deepest challenges affecting Boston and all of our communities are in fact regional issues that can't be solved if each city is just looking inwards. You know, you get the situation we have now where the housing crisis is exacerbated by the differences in, in willingness to, to zone for density or allow for affordable units in, in different municipalities. You get bike lanes or bus lanes that literally cut off at municipal borders that you otherwise wouldn't realize you're crossing over from Cambridge into Boston. Um, and you get a lot of finger pointing in some cases around, for example, the opiate crisis, you know, individual um, cities saying that this is a statewide issue and therefore it's sort of out of our purview. These 12 elected officials represent the next generation of leadership in Massachusetts, each trailblazers in their own right and all so dedicated to the power of cities to lead. Right? We are certainly, you know, at, at the city level, needing to interact with state government a lot, and many issues require statewide legislation. But imagine the difference it would make with regional vision, with regional partnership for cities to come together and go to the state house or put out a, a proactive 
plan for what needs to happen across the region on housing, transportation, climate, closing the racial wealth gap, education, so many of these issues. Uh, we really need that kind of partnership. You want to mention any names who were involved in, in the event yesterday, just because a lot of our listeners, and I'm guessing Peter and I also may not be familiar with the people who just came out to back you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Okay, so I don't have the list in front of me, but I'll do my best. Um, there were 11 cities represented. You know, we'd had a double up among the 12 from Cambridge, from uh, Councillors Jeevan, Sabrina Wheeler, and Quinton Zondervan. Um, and then in the nearby area, uh, select board member Raul Fernandez from Brookline, Judith Garcia from Chelsea, um, Ryan O'Malley from Malden, um, uh, Ben Ewan Campin from Somerville, and then going a little further out, you know, all the way out to um, Quincy right nearby, Ian Kane and Pittsfield with, with City Councilor Helen Moon, um, Caroline Bays in Watertown, um, Holly Ryan in Newton. I'm sure I'm forgetting probably one or two people, but it's just an incredible group of folks who I've had the privilege to work with in the past on issues such as transportation, standing up for fair free transit and access to a reliable public transit system, as well as reshaping the face of politics in Massachusetts, making it more welcoming, inclusive, and representative. Wow, Michelle, Pittsfield, that's almost like you have a foreign policy. Um, but listen, from a, a metropolitan policy point of view, again, citing in the serious vein, Pittsfield, um, in a, a, a community-based point of view, this sort of thing makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm a little skeptical about how this translates politically to you as a run for mayor. It, it's certainly a very strong signal that when you talk about a broader approach or a more metropolitan approach to Boston's problems, that you've already put your money where your mouth is. It's not a perfect analogy, but all the outside help and ideas that were floated to defeat Susan Collins in Maine just didn't work. So politically, in a narrow sense, how does this translate? That's right. I, you know, certainly I'm running for mayor of Boston, and I know my Boston constituents and, and residents across the city are the voices who will not only decide next year's election, but also shape the future of our city and the policies that will create opportunity and, and reflect the urgency of, of change that we need. I think the point of introducing and celebrating support from colleagues from outside the city is to remind everyone that not only are families spread across municipal borders, right, more and more of a, a connection between people who live in Boston and others who they know and love um, right over the line or, or having to commute back into the city for work. But our ideas are very closely intertwined. And so this is about the recognition that Boston's leadership matters beyond Boston's borders. And in a similar vein, what happens in neighboring municipalities matters to us too. And so we very much need to recognize our role in the larger ecosystem and I would say, in fact, that extends even beyond Massachusetts, that over the course of our history as a city, when Boston has stood up to invest in the public good, to, to innovate and be a leader on everything from revolution to public education and parks and libraries and marriage equality and civil rights, 
we have transformed the trajectory of this country. And so Boston's significance, uh, of course, is centered on our residents and our neighborhoods and communities. But we have to recognize that it matters for us to step into our leadership role beyond our borders, too. Has Marty Walsh, to your eye, Mayor Walsh, done that at all? I mean, I'm thinking just because it happened this week uh, of the mayor's announcement that Boston was going to go further when it comes to rolling back our reopening in the face of COVID than the state has gone so far in sync with several other communities. That's just one really recent example. There may be other big ones that I'm not thinking of, or there may not be. Uh, in making this case for a, a certain approach to municipal politics, is it your take that the mayor hasn't done it really much at all in a meaningful way or that he hasn't done it enough so far? What we know is that over the last seven, eight years, Boston has had some of the greatest wealth, the biggest development boom, just tremendous resources flowing through our city. That is you know, through changing the landscape, the built environment of the city, but also flowing through the city budget and our coffers. And with that level of you know, greatest surpluses that the city of Boston has seen in modern history over the last couple of years, right? $90 million annual surpluses. And we haven't seen the scale and the urgency of change on the on our deepest issues that are rooted in the need for regional coordination, right? Our housing crisis has worsened, even as we have seen so much growth and development. Our climate vulnerability remains one of the, the um, greatest areas of concern along the East Coast and, and across the world. New England is constantly held up as an example of one of the areas most vulnerable to climate change. And we've seen a lot of plans and reports and commissions, announcements, but not the scale of action that's required, both in terms of the specific steps we're taking in Boston, as well as the need to coordinate that across the region. Uh, I think COVID is also a, a great example where there has been uh, a sense of finger pointing or at least a delay and procrastination on, on making those hard decisions between this overlap of what is at the city and what is at the state. And we have not seen clear leadership, I would argue, from either level in terms of truly making the difficult decisions driven by science for our public health and safety that are politically hard. And instead we have had this experience of moving from crisis to crisis, no transparency or sense of predictability about what the rollbacks or changes or regulations are. You know, it's one thing to be changing the color coding of different maps to improve the optics of, of you know, how our actions are being perceived. But we have had more than 11,000 fatalities from COVID in this state, right? The third highest fatality rate out of any state in the U.S., and that, you know, if you talk to our small businesses, if you talk to families with students home because schools are closed, it has been this constant yo-yoing back and forth of not knowing what will come next because there hasn't been true planning for resiliency and for our recovery, but instead a very reactive managing and mitigation of the political consequences. Michelle, can you point to um, another city 
and state that's done a better job than Massachusetts? Can you give us a concrete example? Many of the examples come from places around the world who all happen to be led by women whose actions have been focused on eliminating and fighting the virus, not just mitigating it. So rather than saying we are going to see what happens with the case counts and then adjust accordingly, you know, ratchet up or down based on that, not quite knowing what the actual goals or metrics are, right? Even the thresholds that have been set, such as a 4% school reopening limit, were then promptly abandoned uh, as, as, as they were crossed. And so we have neither set goals or been clear about what the plan is, nor provided the support and relief to truly allow for people to have both their lives and their livelihoods. No, I, I understand that. But even if they're overseas, um, and especially because they're women-led, what, what, are, what, what are the localities that you think have done a better job? So Taiwan, for example, with its proximity to the epicenter of where the virus started, has had seven fatalities total the entire time and 40 some cases total. They went to into immediate action with prompt contact tracing, testing supply chains for PPE that were ready to go and ramped up and uh, uh, closing down of activity that corresponded with economic relief for businesses and for residents that seemed you know, very sudden and, and intense initially, but they have been able to reopen so much more quickly and in the big picture, in the long term, have had far fewer costs, both in terms of lives as well as the economic costs in doing so. New Zealand, of course, is another example. I think that the primary difference is that we are managing hospital resources here and we are mitigating political heat and consequences rather than truly defining a plan that provides re relief for our small businesses and for our workers and families. Uh, we have put casinos before schools in our prioritization of this, and that has left everyone with awful choices at the individual level. Just one follow-up. Um, New Zealand has a very different political culture than the United States does, and I'm admire their track record and Taiwan's of um, dealing with this. But New, New Zealand's crackdown would almost be considered draconian by American standards. How can a, how can America, how could we expect an American political leader to be as tough as they were in New Zealand? No, there's no, I think you're absolutely right. There's no exact comparison and we cannot omit or, or gloss over the disaster of our federal government during this entire situation that has certainly left state and city leaders with, with even fewer options. But I think even within that context, just looking at Boston as a municipality or Massachusetts as a commonwealth, we have some of the most well-resourced and most advanced healthcare and biotech resources anywhere in the country. Right, both on the hospital side, on the um, pharmaceutical and biotech company side, uh, from the, the nonprofit and, and community side as well. And to be in a place where we are now, you know, our students are 
some 280 days since some of them have set foot, most of them have set foot inside a school building in Boston. And we have not had a conversation with all options on the table. We've not been talking about rapid testing or what's called surveillance testing, constant monitoring of the virus to be able to allow for our school communities to be safe, for teachers and students and families to be safe in going back to school. We have been stuck in this mindset of just accepting a false choice between keeping people safe or opening up older you know, buildings without ventilation systems and exposing everyone to the virus. There are plenty of other facilities in the city that aren't being used right now that would be perfect for in-person learning to, to just slightly retrofit colleges and universities, you know, em- empty classrooms or community centers or uh, a hockey rink that, that could be de-iced. There are many options that we have not explored because the priority was never on putting uh, first the ability for schools to open safely. And, and so without having the conversation about testing, contact tracing, other facilities, again, the burden is put on individuals for the lack of government action. And I think for me, what the most frustrating part of this has been is to hear our decision makers actively criticizing and putting, and putting blame on individuals, right? That so much of the content at press conferences at the city and state level has been to point out that young people are gathering together or that people shouldn't be seeing their families, you know, quote unquote, household spread, which is not a real thing because it's not as if the virus is just popping out of the walls in your house. These family members are being exposed to the virus through community spread, and we aren't doing enough to make it safe for people to have social interaction. The burden should not be on individuals to be responsible for the lack of a a structural government response. Michelle's points about structure are well taken. I have to confess to being very old-fashioned, or maybe not old-fashioned, in thinking that in the instance of um, this disease, it ultimately comes down to individual responsibility. Um, That doesn't mean it's up to the individual alone, but if the individual won't cooperate with the government, as they did in New Zealand, we're all lost. It's, it's a very different scale of what you mean by cooperation, though, when there is a structural commitment to give people convenient options to cooperate with versus eliminating the, the ability to support your family and be safe at the same time, right? Even, even if we get to the level of businesses or organizations that need to keep their workers safe. For example, childcare providers or um, workplaces that, that need to be open and, and um, remain, you know, are essential for, for in-person work. The fact that so many of these organizations had to scramble all on their own to figure out where they could get PPE, how they could buy it, what type of protection was needed for their workers, where where they could access testing, instead of having a coordinated response for some sort of you know, bulk purchasing for these materials that everyone needs, or a commitment to um, contact tracing that would actually keep the virus down after after our numbers came down over the summer. That you know it's just been one instance after another where 
you can't expect people just through washing their hands and wearing masks to take care of the virus. We really need a whole different scale of commitment to creating the environment for that to be possible, right? When someone gets on the T, public transportation being a, a place where people are in close proximity sometimes all together in person, it shouldn't be a question of blaming individuals for not wearing their mask when they get on the T. We should be providing free masks for anyone who doesn't have one as they get on. Because for some people, that is the difference between being late to work and being docked pay or losing their job altogether. And so th- th- there is much more that we could have done. And I think our the results show the, the impact of that, the 11,000 fatalities and, and, and counting, unfortunately. And we cannot wait until the vaccine comes just to sort of put our heads in the sand because these next few weeks are going to be the height of the second surge, even greater um, case counts and infection rates than past than in the spring. So we should be using this time to really be intentional about building the plan for recovery, about creating a vaccination plan that is equitable and will distribute this in, in community in a, in a way that builds trust uh, after we have seen so much trust dissipated even further with the disparities in outcomes through this pandemic, particularly in Black and Latinx communities. I know we could talk about COVID probably for another hour because we don't have that much time. I, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you, Michelle, what I think is a, a follow-up question in a way to an interview that you and I did a couple weeks ago when I was doing a overview of the Boston mayoral race so far. I asked both you and Andrea Campbell to differentiate yourselves from each other, positing that, you know, it was going to be a race with uh, Mayor Walsh likely to be seeking re-election, then two not Walsh candidates. Andrea Campbell, your council colleague, responded by pointing to her biography uh, after praising you and saying that you two had worked effectively together, would continue to, to uh, do so. She went on to talk about how she had been raised in Boston and kind of lived the city's challenges firsthand for decades. You offered a very different response, um, talking about how you were equipped to be a platform for the change that people wanted to see in the city, how you had an established record of uh working on a number of issues that people felt passionately about and saying it's not just about who has the lived personal experience to equip them to make certain decisions. It's about a a much bigger group of people working in concert to accomplish things. I'm paraphrasing. Tell me if I'm getting it wrong. This is all a big wind up to me wanting to get you to talk a bit about your own biography, because even though you didn't point to it right away in answering that question that I asked you a couple weeks ago, you do have a personal story that is both remarkable and I'm guessing, although I could be wrong, informs in some ways the way that you think about particular public policy matters. So can you talk listeners through your personal story and describe the ways in which it does inform your thoughts on politics? Yeah, no, I I really appreciate that question because I think you know, my um, long-winded answer to your other interview question, I I think the point I was trying to make in answering that question was more about pushing back on the frame that there are just, you know, there's just one spot that 
the non-incumbent people have to fight over. There are three candidates in this race, presumably, right? We don't know for sure yet, but um, it seems likely that there are three candidates in this race and that each of us have our track record, each of us have our lived experiences. And um, I think I was tr- what I was trying to, to emphasize was that there's also a need to, in this moment in our country, but especially in the city, to think about how we get to that bold, urgent leadership and the scale of change that we need. Um, and yes, that is absolutely supported by personal experiences, by lived experiences, by connections to community. And for me, it's, it, it, it is the reason why I am serving on, on the city council. I grew up as someone who never, ever considered running for office, right? It's not quite in my natural personality as someone who's more introverted um, to, to, to ever have thought that I would one day be in government, much less you know, on the ballot. And I grew up in an immigrant family that was, frankly, very skeptical of government and especially of politicians. Right? My, my family's multi-generational immigration story with my, my immigrant parents themselves being children of immigrants who had fled mainland China during civil war. So politics was so many of the things my family was trying to escape. Right? Politics was corruption and famine and fear. Um, and unfortunately, that perception was only reinforced by our experiences uh, when my mom had a mental health crisis and began to struggle with mental illness. And she, she continues to, to live with mental illness today. And, and you know for about a dozen years now, um, I very suddenly uh, took on the role of raising my sisters in that experience, becoming caregiver to my mom. Um, she's much better today, thanks to some of the incredible healthcare resources um, in this city. And she, she lives with me, and she's probably the happiest person in our family right now because she gets to spend the, the pandemic surrounded by her grandkids who are home all day, not in school. The rest of us are quite stressed about it. But, um, but it, it, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that I have lived what it means when government works and especially when government doesn't work for people and how big of a disconnect there is, um, particularly when there are language barriers, particularly when there are cultural barriers and when you feel that the system wasn't built for you and that your voice doesn't matter, that you're invisible before government. So with all of the policies that we're trying to push, at the heart of it is about not only why city government matters, but who matters to our government and whose voices need to be part of shaping that future. Michelle, what specifically was your mother's diagnosis? Early on, it was a struggle even to get her to acknowledge that something was happening. What began as paranoia quickly accelerated into delusions. Um, I I think I'm sure exacerbated by her not sleeping, not eating, um, self-medicating with alcohol for a bit of time. And you know, she would be withdrawn in, in her bedroom all day, even as my sisters were home and, and relatively young at that point. And so the first diagnosis was late onset schizophrenia. It was um, you know, the, the, the type of hallucinations and, and delusions that, um, and psychosis that comes along with it. Um, later, she did stay inpatient at MGH for a, a longer period of time, and that diagnosis was 
adjusted to um, depression with psychosis just because the the timeline didn't quite make sense in terms of you know the age that she was at when it when it actually started uh, for it to be schizophrenia but the symptoms are all the same and um, there's still such a strong sense of stigma within her that that she feels and and it took us as a family a long time to even be able to share what was happening at home just the sense of guilt did we do something wrong and um growing up in a culture that um you you don't talk about that kind of thing and so i have you know grown um i don't think necessarily more comfortable um with with talking about her you know her story and and her um experience but i think it's really important for anyone who has a platform who might be willing to share um, just to to help break that stigma to help emphasize how many people are going through something similar in their family and therefore how badly out of whack our policies and support systems are given the prevalence given the importance of mental health and and treating mental illness Michelle one quick follow up um i i like most people who are aware of it, are you know impressed by your personal story. Um, could you explain to us? Didn't you start a business to sort of keep the family afloat? Um, th- that's something that I honestly don't know anything about. In that, I just think as a concrete example of coping, would be something worth sharing with us. Yeah, my parents had constructed these careful bubbles around my siblings and me to you know not talk about current events we never discussed government or or how it affects anything and in the midst of my mom's mental health crisis that bubble burst very quickly right in having to figure out how to fight for the resources that my sisters needed in school given the trauma that was happening at home uh, the healthcare situation for my mom and finding a mental health provider who spoke her language that she was most comfortable with and understood the culture. And probably the among the most frustrating parts of that was the experience of opening a small family business to keep us going. And what was intended to be something that would support my family and the neighborhood overall ended up being a protracted battle with City Hall over licensing, inspections, arbitrary um, rules and, and delays and denials. And I went through the entire municipal code at that point related to restaurants and had studied up and prepared. And it was just such an eye-opening experience to talk to all of the business owners down the street as well and realize that everybody had had to jump through arbitrary hoops um, just to do something that was was good for the community and and was um, supporting everyone's individual ability to support their families. So what, what specifically was the business, though? Your reticence is getting the better of you. So um, this was in Chicago where, um, you know, near where my family was. And I had opened a 25-seat tea house that serves loose-leaf teas, and um, dumplings and you know whatever pastries I would make for, for the day. And it came out of this ongoing uh, sort of maybe naivete at this point, um, but a belief that as quickly as it seemed that my mom's mental health crisis had started, that maybe 
if we just stabilized her, she would kind of snap out of it. Right? And I know much more about mental health now and that what seems sudden to us as family members on the outside actually was probably a very long process internally of her holding everything together. And it wasn't just a, a sort of sudden um, eruption with, within her. But for us at that time, right, I was 22 years old, 23, and she had always talked about, you know, as she was raising us kids, uh, and you know, having given up her career and and um, moved to to immigrated to this country just to invest in in us in the next generation, that one day she would retire from being a stay at home mom and open a little tea shop because she, tea was just such an important part of her daily routine. And so, my belief at that time was, you know, here I could do something that would help my family, maybe stabilize my mom, help her fulfill this lifelong dream that she had had, and I would pass on the business back to her and go back to my, my own life as a young professional. Um, and clearly, you know, her, her mental illness was a, is, is a lifelong condition now, and uh, we ran the business for a while, and it just became clear it wasn't going to be something that she could take over. So we ended up selling the business, and um, I came back to Boston at that point for law school to try to figure out how to better untangle the web of city requirements and how that was a barrier for so many families. Let, let me make an awkward attempt to go from the past, not so much to the moment, but let's look ahead to the future. Um, before we started recording, you mentioned that today is the last um, meeting of the Boston City Council for 2020. Um, now, I recognize that you're not a spokesperson for the council at whole, but you've, you know, you're a senior member at this point. Um, could you sum up for our listeners and tell us, what do you think, what do you think or what does the council think is the unfinished business of 2020. And in some ways, this business, I mean, I don't want to preempt your, your answer, but COVID has quite understandably and quite rightly changed the entire city's focus on everything. But um, what's the unfinished business of 2020 for the Boston City Council, as best you can say? Right. Well, there's a lot on the agenda for today. So hopefully uh, a chunk of that will be um, off the list as of later this afternoon. But I think we have seen just such a disruption, of course, within the city and devastation within particularly communities of color through this pandemic. Uh, we've also, on the political side, really seen a disruption in terms of the momentum and the um, I think the projections about what would happen going into this term, right? Last election cycle in 2019, the city of Boston elected our first ever majority women city council, majority people of color serving on the council, and majority progressive council. And there was so much excitement about all that we would be passing and doing and, and getting done. And right away, right? Just a few months into that new term, everything turned to the crisis at hand, school shutdowns, public health crisis, just a scale of emergency that uh, rightly so consumed everything. And so on the legislative side, you know, it has been a little bit slower this year. We've passed a number of 
of groundbreaking pieces of legislation, a ban on face surveillance, uh, racially discriminatory technology that threatens basic civil rights, um, that I, I was proud to shepherd through with with uh, several of my colleagues, Council Ricardo Arroyo and, and Council President Kim Janey. Um, we saw uh, just recently landmark afford, uh, fair housing legislation passed that Councilor Lydia Edwards had shepherded through. Um, Councilor Sabi George has moved uh, a piece of legislation several years in the making around the uh, opiate crisis and and requiring pharmacies to be collecting, taking needles back um, to, to try to affect quality of life, particularly around mass and cast. Um, and then on the agenda today, there are three big pieces of legislation related to police reform and moving to meet the moment in terms of this national reckoning on systemic racism. And so I think COVID, in fact, um, is the reminder and the the deepener of so many of the structural issues and the crises that communities were already facing. So the unfinished business is what it was in some ways before the pandemic, only now more urgent. The business around truly delivering racial justice and equity around economic justice and closing gaps in our city that we have the resources to close, that we have the activism and the ideas to solve, uh, but really finding that political will and the urgency of this moment to make sure we're doing all we can at the local level. Michelle Wu, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Peter, before we wrap up, any closing thoughts on what Michelle Wu had to say or the race in general? As far as the race in general, you know, I really wonder how many people are paying attention. Now, those that are are very important to all of the candidates, whether it be Mayor Walsh or Councillor Campbell or Councillor Wu. But traditionally, the Boston race sort of kicked off around St. Patrick's Day. Um, the thought that Walsh might leave to go to Washington for Biden, which, as we talked about, doesn't seem about to materialize, certainly spurred people in. But um, it's going to be a very long one. And these early days, um, I think, are very important for Wu and Campbell to get their sea legs. Um, very, very important. One, one th- thought about Michelle, it's interesting how reticent she can be in talking about herself. Um, but by the way, that's not a slam. Um, it, it's an observation, I suppose, in a way. It's a compliment. Um, she wants her story out there, but seeing her face-to-face on Zoom, of course, you, you can see her making an effort um, by the way, not a hard effort to, to just talk about it. And she has a, um, well, the listeners can decide for themselves, but uh, she, she has an interesting backstory, as, by the way, does Campbell and as, by the way, does the mayor. I was glad that you asked her to elaborate on the business that she ended up starting uh, when her mom was first hitting uh, a period of trouble with mental health because there were details in there that that I don't think I'd heard before. For example, that she was, as she did this, not just trying to get her family through the period, but trying to implement 
her mom's dream so that her mom could take it over when things went back to normal. I found that incredibly powerful. And I don't think we would have heard it if you hadn't given that little nudge. I, one, one other thought, I think of myself as a fairly extroverted person. I'm married to someone who defines herself as an introvert, as Michelle Wu does. And it's interesting how some of us who are not introverted, there's stuff that I would not think twice about sharing, particularly if I thought it might work to my advantage as a politician. And it's always interesting to see how differently people who are not wired quite the same as me deal with those sorts of things, if that makes sense. I don't know if it does. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. Um, what What's interesting is, you know, not to play on my age, but to recognize it. But there's, you know, someone who's covered every Boston mayor since Kevin White, so that goes back a long way. Um, conversations such as this, and such as ones we've had with Mayor Walsh, and I hope such as ones we'll have in the future with Campbell, um, really underscore the fact of how much politics has changed um, in Boston. I'll just leave it to Boston. It's, it's true of the nation at large, but um, the degree to which the personal has become the political. I mean, under Kevin White, under Ray Flynn, who was a pretty emotive guy under Menino, the, the guidelines, the rules, the guardrails for what candidates talked about and didn't talk about were uh, very different than they are today. And with that, another installment of the Scrum has run its course. Big thanks to Michelle Wu for joining us and to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to the Scrum, rate us if you have a minute, and talk back to us. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org. I think we'll lose the W down the road. You can also find us on Twitter. Our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. That's Matthews with one T. I'm at Riley Adam. And Peter, you are? At Kadzis, K-A-D-Z-I-S with a capital K. The Scrum is a production of GBH News. We'll talk to you again in the new year. In the interim, happy holidays and stay safe.